Hello, everyone. Welcome to another podcast episode. And my friend just brought me a nice bag of ganja tea, ganja leaves. And so I'll be sipping on some of that while I share my thoughts with you today. Uh, It doesn't have any THC in it or anything like that, so it's not going to get me high. But it is rather a very relaxing um, tea. So, I want to start out today by giving a shout out to a lady by the name of Jody Ledgerwood. I believe she's a broker for a real estate firm, and I believe she also practiced the law. I'm not sure if she's a PPC party member or just an advocate for the PPC party, but I wanted to send her some shout outs because she's someone of my time and someone in my neighborhood that's just out there fighting back. If ever there was a front line, it's absolutely her. She is just up and out there at all times and hours of the day, protesting, speaking, shedding light and awareness, just putting herself, her voice, gathering people, you know, just out there helping people save their businesses and their livelihoods and just teaching people about the law and helping people to advocate for themselves in these um, difficult times so shout out to her I don't know all her politics but in regards to what's happening now it's plain to see that she's about freedom and justice and choice instead of just uh, spreading discrimination and hate and interestingly enough I came across a post on her Instagram page, which is what inspired the thoughts that I want to share with you today. So this post uh, caught my attention. So I'm going to read the post to you and then we'll just get into the reasonings behind uh, why it caught my attention after. So the post goes like this. The pandemic was brought in for the vaccine. The vaccine was brought in for the vaccine passport. The vaccine passport was brought in for the biometric ID. The biometric ID was brought in for the central bank digital currency, CBDC. The central bank digital currency or CBDC was brought in to enslave you now you might have seen some posts like this going around and you might figure yeah yeah what else is new it might not have struck you in the same way that it struck me but the reason it struck me is because lately I've been sort of experiencing a lot of what you might call coincidences and seeing that I'm not a person that just believes in coincidences that you know we kind of just in a way that we kind of just shrug off as mere coincidences you know I guess I just paid uh more attention to it and it had me thinking and just gathering up some thoughts so the fact that we are experiencing this great shift in time and space with all the people and our planet and just everything going on. The revelations appearing to me and the fact that we're living in this exciting age of information, you know, when you seek or ask questions, the answers just like come to you just like that. And not necessarily because we could just go and and, and Google our answers, but because everyone is sharing and everyone is uh becoming more informed that information you know it's um just reaches you quickly it just reaches 
you inside and outside of the internet world. So it's no wonder that I'm not surprised that certain forces that be, uh, certain forces with a lot of power and, and influence and certain forces that may have different agendas, it's no surprise to me that they would attempt to ban or censor or fight against this uh, sort of a thing. So, while these are exciting times for the planet, there's still a lot of sad, very sad battles and wars being raged right now. But on the bright side, these battles and these wars are awakening more and more people each day. Each day we put the puzzle pieces together and we're more mindful and we're more aware of what's actually happening in and around us. So the biometric ID was brought in for the central bank digital currency, right? And the central digital bank currency was brought in to enslave you. So the other day I was just, you know, doing me, checking up on some Bitcoin or, you know, rather just to see what's happening in the the crypto world, you know, what's progressing, what's making headlines. Because we all know crypto has been a big thing since uh, the fall of the markets and everything's just that's just taking place in our economy right now crypto has been on the rise and i've been aware of bitcoin since around 2015 um of course like many people in the early days um a lot of us for us it just didn't make sense nor could i comprehend how this all fits into reality but because i was introduced to it by someone i respected I thought, hey, why not give it a shot? And, uh, you know, so we only invested like a measly $7 or $13. I can't quite remember, but something like that. So that was no big deal, you know, to take such a, a cheap risk because $7 wouldn't like make or break me. Well, it, it has the potential to make me, but not break me. So that's what we did. That's what I did. And I got into Bitcoin. So I did a lot of, uh, not a lot, but I did a bit of of reaping of what I sowed because of my earlier investments. Yay! So the other day, I came across some information that led me to a Stansberry research clip on uh, YouTube an interview that uh, they had with uh, Jordan Freed. So Jordan Freed is the chairman and CEO of Immutable Holdings. And Immutable Holdings recently went public on uh, Canada's uh, Neo Exchange. So this is some exciting stuff. Um, yeah, like, you know, the Neo Exchange, which is, is just opening up doors to the masses where, you know, the opportunities weren't there before or just not that easily accessible when you're talking about, um, especially for Canadians, right? Uh, the markets uh, before, uh, we it wasn't that easy to, to invest in some of the bigger corporations some of the bigger american corporations like amazon or tesla so now with fractional shares and now with um the hedge on the currency with the neo uh, exchange you know life's good right so as i tried to grasp what's happening i realized and i'm not sure it was kind of like these guys at at immutable holdings they bought up certain domain names or domain spaces right in hopes of uh something coming into fruition or something that they are putting into fruition which which is not a new concept because i mean uh, i remember back in the days you know and still now like people we we buy up domain names have you ever like had a name and when you go try to buy the .com, like it's just not available and you might go check out the site and you notice um, 
there's there, it's not a live site like people would just buy up the domains and in hopes that somebody who wants that domain they'll have to purchase it from them or maybe the um domain um entities themselves are the would purchase certain maybe favorable or popular names in hopes that you have to you know pay some money a lot of money to get that domain name if you really want it so nothing new so but you know that was my understanding after watching the clip uh they bought these domain names and uh now they're gonna put forth some things or the people are gonna their investors and stuff like that they're you know it's just open now for what is to come so one of those domain names that they own is uh the central bank digital currency the cbdc amongst other holdings that they have like nfts.com so before I, I i continue with my thoughts I'll, I'll just play a little bit of of the clip from the interview to give you guys um s- some better idea of, of 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 what i'm talking about what we felt would be really interesting is bringing a portfolio of blockchain businesses like nft.com 1-800-BITCOIN, a mutable asset management, a CBDC, central bank digital currency business, putting it together in what we like to think of as the Berkshire Hathaway of blockchain and bringing that to public equity markets. So that's why we decided to go public now. You can buy Bitcoin mining companies. Those are publicly traded. Hive, Hut8, Riot. I don't own any of those, but I know they're publicly traded. You can you can invest there. But uh, And now Coinbase is public. So we're starting to see more blockchain public equity plays but this is the first time that a true blockchain holding company is coming to public markets and we're really excited to be that uh, that opportunity okay so nft.com will be part of the umbrella of immutable holdings is that correct am i getting that that's right. So Immutable Holdings obviously named after Immutable Ledger Technology, which describes mm-hmm. a blockchain and how it works. We have in there six subsidiary businesses, and one of those is NFT.com. So let me ask you, good for you for securing NFT.com. When did you do that? How many years ago? <laughs> it, it, it's, it's funny. People think it must have been like 10 years ago or 20 That's years ago. That's what I ago. thought. The guy, yeah. the, guy that bought, the guy that bought it had actually had it since the 90s, and he knew at a high level what blockchains wow. were, and he knew... He knew what NFTs were, but NFTs weren't crazy. Daniela, we bought that in January, so it wasn't that long ago. Uh, it was January of this year. Uh, the uh, amount that we paid has started to be uh, speculated or reported. I won't confirm or deny the numbers, but it was a multi-million dollar price tag. Uh, I do believe the domain is worth you know, a multiple of at least 10 times what we paid for it. Uh, and obviously, it's not for sale. Uh, so everyone emailing us asking if it's for sale, it's not. <laughs> uh, you can stop. <laughs> Okay. emailing us and we are we're, we're developing a really exciting business there uh, around so you know i guess it's a part of their whole scheme that they own the domain names and there might be not anything really tangible in the works behind it yet but it's all in the coming you know and it's just interesting to me coming across that after I was just reading the post on uh, Jody Ledger's uh, Instagram page. And seeing what Immutable Holden is doing or trying to do helps me to see how things are just being played out and how they basically they, they come into fruition. And not to say that these guys have bad intentions, but... Oftentimes, people start out with good intentions, but down the road, you know, things, those good intentions just get corrupted or they turn into something else. And especially when um, there are a lot of big players involved. So here's a little bit more from that same clip where he explains a bit more about the central bank uh, digital currency. 
So we've had digital currencies for a really long time, and we've had central bank digital currencies for a really long time. Most of the U.S. money supply, most of the money supply globally is not actually paper money sitting in like, you know, vaults, bank vaults. It's actually ones and zeros and databases that move around. Banks send it back and forth, and it's displayed when we log into our web apps or our mobile apps, and we want to look at our bank balances. So not all central bank digital currencies are going to be blockchain related, which I think is kind of a big disappointment. There's a major opportunity here to bring new trust transparency and a whole new feature set to users specifically users need two things and they're demanding it in fact if we look back to the 2008 financial crisis it was really crypto came as a reactionary response to the financial crisis there was a group of cyberpunks on internet forums that were like hey we need a form of money that just can't be printed at any point in time. We can't trust the banks. We need access to our money 24-7. If we issue a central bank digital currency on a blockchain, the, the populace, the people, will have insight into exactly what the money supply is at any point in time. You can do that on Bitcoin. You can see exactly how many Bitcoins are in circulation. You can do that on HBAR. You can see exactly how many HBARs are in circulation. But the second feature set is you have access to your money 24-7-365. You can go log in if you don't keep it on an exchange, but if you actually keep a Bitcoin wallet using your public and private key pair or using your HBAR wallet with a public and private key pair, you can access your funds around the clock. During the 2008 financial crisis, that was not the case. Banks close at the end of business on most business days. You have limits as to how much you can take out from ATM machines. It's really exciting to have a form of money that's cross-border, that's transportable. That's trusted and not, not, not trusted because politicians say it's trusted, but that has real math and science behind it that proves that it is immutable, that it is scarce. So when we realize all the things taking place and how the financial, the financial markets are in crisis, we know there's a change being ushered in and they of course talk a lot about the great reset and there's now more of a push and an, and an acceptance around cryptocurrencies especially now that it makes more sense in in our lives um so just because we are transferring out of one currency and into the next I'm pretty sure at one point the dollar appeared to be attractive and there were many incentives and cool features available to make you switch or, you know, sign up to the dollar, you know, give away your gold to the government or whatever. There, were, You know, these might have been some of the reasons that enticed people to accept the dollar more. So it's it's even kind of like this so-called pandemic that's going on right now. You know, take the vaccine and you get free ice cream and some chicken. And it seems attractive, but do you ever stop and, and, and wonder why? So crypto has become more... Uh, crypto has, has come, I guess, basically to revolutionize the financial industry, amongst other things. And you hear everywhere now how the financial industry is in a lot of crises, right? So you have crypto coming in, opening up doors and just creating competition. And of course, if you can make some money and better yourselves and, you know, you're just becoming more financially well off, why not? But I don't think we should fool ourselves that once the dust settles, we won't fall right back into the same traps that, you know, we, we, we're in or that we say we, we want to come out of, um, you know, just falling right back into the same traps that doesn't really mean us any good. Because if you have eyes, you know, you can clearly see everything they give you, they eventually come back and try to take it away. Because it wasn't really given to you with a good heart. It wasn't really given to you with your best interests at heart, but rather to keep you in the same dependent state. So I know, like, I'm not trying to bash crypto or anything because I know a lot of people, especially a lot of young people that are really into this, they're just true believers and they just can't see 
any flaws or anything you know wrong with this kind of like when Obama came into power like a lot of people just really thought he was the savior so there's always incentives to join and to get the people to participate but just you know keep up your your head on your shoulder like it can be taken away it can eventually become corrupt or any other types of problems and I can't help but to think it's all just one big game that you know will eventually eventually just lead the people right back into the same cycle that we think we're coming out of so I want to play again another piece from the clip where he talks more about the regulations and compliances with governments. Uh, going public was a really special experience, uh, and we did it in Canada of all places. Canadian markets have been really progressive to not just blockchain and cryptocurrency, but to marijuana and psychedelics, and they're just more progressive than we are in this country. And they provide, uh, their regulators bring much more regulatory clarity. I've been a big advocate, I know Kevin has been on your show, talking about the need for compliance, the need for clear regulation in the world of blockchain and cryptocurrency. So while I'd love to come and bring this business to U.S. capital markets, we really do need to partner with the regulators for them to make that possible. Uh, and, and, and today it's not. Okay. We were definitely black sheep in crypto. Everyone told me I was crazy for thinking we'd have this internet money thing that everyone would be using. Uh, but uh, it, 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 we, we've come to a point where every year crypto has become a little bit more acceptable. I attribute that to clear compliance and regulation, KYC, AML. There's really great companies that are working with governments to help enforce some of these policies on these on these decentralized networks. Then we welcome we welcome this maturity into the ecosystem. As as it's become more mainstream, uh, young guys like myself get invited into really exciting conversations. So whether that's sitting in a room with the Monetary Authority of Singapore talking about their central bank digital currency, or consulting with NBA teams about non-fungible tokens and use cases that they can do, I got to pitch the CEO of Google Cloud, Thomas Curry, in 20 years for working for Larry Ellison as the president of Oracle, now running Google Cloud. And for a kid from Buffalo who's, you know, trying to make a name for myself in blockchain, that's really like the pinnacle of, you know, uh, excitement. So all in all, we still don't know how this will all fully play out. And um, I did read an article from one of the finance ministers in response, um, the Canadian finance minister in response to how they feel about having a central bank digital currency I'll read that in a minute for you guys but um in a nutshell uh, I think they said at the end of the day there's still um I still at the at the end of the day it sounded like they were trying to say uh I don't think it's gonna happen but I don't necessarily believe that and there's still a lot of money being invested in crypto and at the very least I say the markets have opened up and we have these different options on how we want to conduct our businesses or um, how we want to do trades, right? Also, as uh, Jordan Freed mentioned, a lot of this stuff is not new and just merely improved upon. Our healthcare system, you know, as uh, an example, our medical system is already a form of a, a decentralized system which is why we have the privacy and, and personal consent laws that have been protecting us. And what's taking place right now in that realm is a, um, a push to have those privacy and those consent be taken away. So just to shed some light on that, we may eventually... Um, so just to shed some light on that, that we may eventually s stop repeating these same mistakes that we keep making. And, you know, that could possibly mean that we need to stop investing our money with these guys. I'm sorry to say that, but I remember in the, in in the beginning of uh, this whole pandemic when the stock market crashed and I thought about everything that was going on with... Um, big pharma and Pfizer and Moderna and the race and all these kind of stuff and 
you know, just thinking about myself and all my friends around me and how we talked about Bill Gates and, you know, who doesn't like him and who sees what he's doing and his agenda and his plan. But yet at the same time, he, you know, has his shares in these companies that we're investing in that we're saying that we're against these things. Hmm. And just to set the record clear, I'm not talking about immutable holdings per se, but you know, I'm just speaking about this in general. Like, like I said, how many people di dislike Bill Gates and his agenda, but then you're, you know, on the stock market putting money in in these companies. That's a part of this problem. So. In the long run, we are kind of our own problems, no? And this is the reason why they have such things, I guess, as ethical investing. So I'm not the first person to be thinking about this or be considering any of this. But, you know, obviously other people have had these legitimate concerns, but are ethical investing really that ethical especially when it comes on to things like the green movement and climate change change movement but anyways that's that's just another uh, subject for another day um i always kind of get sidetracked but you know that's another really interesting topic to get into and i can go on for hours but maybe it all boils down to you know what our elders have been saying gold and silver is God's currency but when we talk about decentralized is it really decentralized data is big business and it's being uh, mined mined uh, or minded it's being mined very hard and our cell phones are one of the easiest way as Edward Snowden tells us for us to be monitored, traced, tracked, for our information to be shared here, there, and everywhere to whom it may concern. Sometimes when uh, someone has an idea or an agenda or they want to create something, all they have to do is speak the word. And especially if you have a large following or if you have a lot of power or a lot of people look up to you religiously. And though there's nothing wrong with following people or, you know, liking someone or looking up to, you know, someone that you like. But at the end of the day, you should still have a mind of your own or at least a mind to discern truth. And sometimes you have to find your own truths if the people you follow are doing more harm than good. Because people with power, when they speak the word, they can often just sit back and not do any work or anything after that at all. It's kind of like that saying, if you build it, they will come. The people will just take those words and fulfill all the works for them. I heard somewhere someone mention, um, you know, that's what this digital real estate is. Kind of like how Uber has a taxi service, but they have no cars. Facebook owns and makes the most money from content, but they don't create any content of their own. So, you know, you get the picture. But once they speak the word, you can have people that just go out and fulfill what it is to be on their behalf. Look at what's going on today. The government say this is what it is and they give their instructions to the businesses and the businesses start firing their employees restaurants start refusing people kids can't play sports 
And all these people that are, you know, just implementing, going along with the implementation of these policies, and then it turns into the unions are forced to, you know, sue or fight with the companies or the individuals are suing or fighting with the companies and these different entities. And then it's off to court to, to, to that we, we go and we, we fight each other and we have to deal with this all on our own. And all of this money coming together for all of this hate and all of this destruction, yet no money pulled together like this to fix hunger and poverty or, or to stop, you know, crime. So when they speak the word, we are actually the ones that go out and do all the work or create that space for these things to come into fruition, for these things to just take over our lives for these things to become the new law. And in return, it's our lives that become divided, stressed, or crazy. So, you know, be weary of whose dreams you are um, acting upon. Be weary of whose dreams you are bringing into fruition. And again, not to pick on like immutable holdings per se, but I think it's just a great example the way I'm breaking it down to you and showing you, you know, how things come into play, how things come into fruition. Because rather, as you heard in the clips, and if you go and look at the site, there might not be anything there yet, but the space is created and the people are coming. Did you not hear him say how much people, how much calls or whatever he has with people wanting to have the site? Everybody's ready to build upon this. Okay, so let me just uh, pull up that article that I mentioned, and I'm just going to read from the article. So the article was posted on September the 30th, 2021 by David and Dolfato, and it says David Adolfato is a senior vice president in the research division at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. <clears throat> and it reads, the Bank of Canada says it has been researching the idea of a central digital bank currency, CBDC, for several years to prepare for the future of money and interbank payments. A CBDC would allow individual Canadians, not just chartered banks, to open accounts with the Bank of Canada I remain relatively agnostic on the proposal. It's not essential at a retail level, but I see merit in it at the wholesale level. Most Canadian households have accounts in private sector banks. No Canadian household, however, has an account with Bank of Canada, the nation's, uh, the nation, the nation's central bank, nor for the matter do most Canadian businesses. The only private sector agencies permitted to have accounts at the Bank of Canada are chartered banks. These accounts, however, are not used to facilitate transactions. Credit balances in these accounts, which may be negative, are called settlement balances. They are used primarily to settle the interbank obligations that arise at the end of each day as a byproduct of clearing household. Business and government payment requests. Net surplus deficit uh, positions across banks are settled in a process that involves banks either accessing the market for settlement balances, an interbank market, or by depositing and or borrowing settlement balances to from the Bank of Canada. The deposit and lending rates at the Bank of Canada's deposit and lending facilities are used to implement interest rate policy. A central bank digital currency is a proposal to grant households and businesses the right to open transaction accounts with the Bank of Canada. Since every household and business already have the right to open transactions account with Canadian chartered banks, what is the case for adding a retail division to a crown corporation specialized in clearing and settling payments between banks? I'm going to skip... Uh, some of the article here because it's quite long 
Given what we have in Canada today and on the near horizon, how far away are we relative to the hypothetical CBDC ideal sketched above? The answer to this question obviously depends on the metric employed. My own view is that we're not that far off and that the, de the and that the deficiencies people commonly cite are better addressed directly through legislation rather than indirectly through the pro provision of a retail level CBDC. Having said this, I remain largely agnostic on the proposal, although I do see merit in the idea of a wholesale CBDC. Let me explain how I come to these conclusions. To begin, a vast majority of Canadians are connected to the banking system. Transactions, accounts, live-in in different banks are connected through Interac, a coalition of private banks that operate our interbank payment system. Thus, a first approximation, Canadians are already connected to each other on a consolidated bank ledger. A centralized ledger provided by a CBDC for retail use would therefore be largely redundant, though some redundancy may be desired. There is the question of why fintech firms must be forced to operate through incumbent banks. One option would be to grant such firms the ability to open accounts directly with the Bank of Canada and to participate in the large value transfer system through a narrow bank charter. Doing so would be tantamount to offering a wholesale version of a CBDC. I mentioned that most Canadians have bank accounts. A small percentage of households, however, do not. It seems unlikely, however, that offering yet another online payment service, even a free one, would induce these individuals to suddenly access the digital payment system. No frill, no fee payment services already exist in Canada, for example, via Tangerine. Any effort to encourage or otherwise help those without bank accounts to access the banking system would be accomplished using the products presently available. So, I mean, I kind of get the idea of, you know, where he's coming from. It's kind of like what I've been saying. It kind of feels like, you know, while we have these awesome incentives and doors are open so you know I love all of that aspect of it and everything it just feels like eventually um we're just moving into the same thing but um nevertheless even if you know uh the, the Bank of Canada doesn't cooperate with this or it doesn't work out that way as we can see they're the uh, Jordan Free Immutable Holdings, they're pulling together their own thing and uh, doing this, you know, in a separate, different way with whatever um, cooperating with the government allows them to do in that capacity. So um, as I continue to read on, uh, let me mention some of the potential roadblocks that he cites. As mentioned above, money balances held in a CBDC account would be fully insured because any CBDC constitutes fiat currency. It represents a claim against itself. It is in contrast to the digital currency produced by banks, which represent legal claims against fiat currency, as well as other bank assets in the event of bankruptcy. Whether this legal distinction matters in today's world or not, however, is debatable. The Canadian banking system is a private public enterprise. The government interacts with private banks through the Bank of Canada, the CDIC, and several other regulatory agencies. Because bank accounts are federally insured up to 100,000 per account, it seems unlikely that households and small businesses would find a CBDC attractive in terms of relative safety. The same consideration is not true of the money held in non-bank accounts, of course, but people using uninsured accounts already have the option of holding transaction balances in CDIC insured accounts. Why would the added option of a CBDC have a, any material impact in this regard? 
Even if people are not concerned with the safety of their deposits, they may be concerned about the security of the personal information associated with their accounts. In addition, while account managers are obligated to respect privacy laws, they are inclined to view some data, such as purchase and credit histories, as priority information to use and possibly sell to interested third parties. While a CBDC would be designed in a way that transfers data rights back to the users, doing so would not necessarily compel banks and PSPs to follow suit. If such an outcome is deemed to be the social interest, then legislation say similar to the PSD2 regulation in Europe seems like a more direct way to achieve this. And so to continue, it continues. The business model employed by card companies is to reward cardholders for spending their money and recoup these and other expenses through merchant fees. Consumers appear to value this arrangement, but merchants do not. Because consumers love reward and cashback programs, they demand the opportunity to pay with the cards offering the best rewards. Merchants have little choice but to accept these forms of payment or risk losing market share. Moreover, the terms that card companies impose on merchants often restrict them from applying payment contingent pricing policies, an example of which is the so-called honor all cards rule. The effect these restrictions have is to encourage consumers to select the payment option with the highest private reward not necessarily the one with the lowest overall social cost. Higher costs must, of course, be absorbed along with other dimensions, including their higher product prices. Given the business model described above, how might an even zero user cost CBDC attract customers? Cardholders already have access to low cost payment methods. A CBDC may potentially offer consumers a relatively high interest rate on their deposits, but this is a reward for saving. Card companies reward consumers for spending, while merchants would no doubt be happy if consumers were to switch en masse to CBDC cards. There'd be no point in introducing the product, at least for this purpose, if consumers are not willing to part with their beloved reward programs. So if the reward programs are the problem, I am not passing judgment here, then abolish the practice as a condition for obtaining a business license in this sector. A CBDC is also promoted on non-payment related grounds. I list the four most commonly made arguments, each followed by a short rebuttal. First, should physical cash disappear, a CBDC would provide its digital equivalent. If physical cash disappears, however, it would be because nobody wants it. It makes no sense to provide a digital equivalent of something nobody wants. Second, a CBDC would disintermediate banks. This is considered a feature, not a bug, by some proponents. I very much doubt this would happen, especially if the CBDC policy interest rate was set below the interest rate banks earn on settlement balances. To begin, banks would surely compete to retain their deposit funding, squeezing profit margins, but not necessarily diminishing lending activity. History also shows how resilient Canadian banks are in this regard. For example, banks lost a cheap source of funding in 1935 when they were prohibited from issuing banknotes, yet they managed to prosper in spite of the restriction. Third, a CBDC is tooted by some as a way to overcome the zero lower bound constraint on central bank interest rate policy. The, the, the desirability of such a policy is debatable, but even if it is desirable, there is nothing in principle to prevent negative interest rates from being offered at the Bank of Canada's deposit and lending facilities. I do not think small denomination cash prevents a negative interest rate policy. Fourth, 
Some have expressed fears that global competition from other central banks offering CBDCs or large online social networks may hamper Canadians' monetary sovereignty. This fear seems somewhat exaggerated. While there may be some currency substitution, as long as the Canadian government requires taxes to be paid in Canadian dollars, the demand for the product is not likely to disappear. In any case, it's not clear how a Canadian CBDC is supposed to discourage Canadians from holding transaction balances in foreign currencies or encourage foreigners to hold transaction balances in Canadian dollars. This is, of course, assuming that CBDCs will be no less constrained than private banks and PSPs presently are in terms of restricting the frequency and value of money transfers as part of fraud prevention. And I'm just going to jump into the conclusion here. A retail CBDC is in principle an attractive proposition, but given the system currently in place and the prospects for its near-term evolution, a retail CBDC on its own is, in my opinion, not essential initiative at this time. For consumers, a retail CBDC would mostly replicate what they already have available. As such, the initiative is not likely to attract businesses away from private sector PSPs or serve to discipline private sector pricing protocols and rewards programs. For a CBDC to be successful in this regard, legislation or moral suasion designed to alter private sector marketing behavior is likely required. But if such legislations were forthcoming, the rationale for a retail CBDC is even further diminished. On the other hand, a wholesale CBDC, together with legislation governing pricing protocols, seems like the most straightforward way to promote competition and fairness in the Canadian payments system. While I see no reason why a CBDC would not work in principle, I also do not see why it is essential in practice. It probably makes more sense to let the Bank of Canada focus on its core competencies, monetary policy, regulations, and wholesale payments, and let a regulated private sector manage retail payments. So there you have it. And um, just wanted to read that article and help, you know, give you some different uh, views around the subject. So even though uh, he does not see a need for a central bank, a digital currency right now, um, they're still building their space and they're still doing what they're doing with uh, the um, powers uh, that be given to them to operate in the allowable capacity that they can and that is what they're going to do but in uh, all reality if uh, they were supposed to become um, the CBDC in this in the in the sense of um, a clearinghouse like the Bank of Canada uh, they could become that for the digital currency world and in the event that, let's say, they replace the Bank of Canada, I think that need, which is not necessarily here now, but back to the original um, inspiration for uh, my, my thoughts uh, that I'm sharing with you today, is that when the biometric ID is ushered in, then that could very well be that initiative that would give them the powers like uh, a Bank of Canada, or that is what would give them the powers to replace the Bank of Canada. If we are all on the biometric ID system, and 
the currency right now that we use is no longer deemed necessary. And just to be clear, biometrics identification is nothing new. We already have those systems in place. We already use them on a day-to-day basis. Biometrics is uh, DNA analysis, eyes recognition, face recognition, finger geometry recognition, hand geometry recognition, typing recognition, and like voice recognition. And we do a lot of those things with our phones to unlock them, to check into places. So trust, if you can do all those things with your phone, those things are also implemented and happening outside and around you. So to break it down, what I'm saying is in the point in time when they actually take that those biometric system and try to implement them inside of you, i.e. the chip, when they try to chip you. Yeah. So that's it, guys. Um, I really wanted to just keep this episode short and sweet. Um, I did not want to go too long. And um, I didn't want to make this confusing. So while we're going through this great reset and we don't know exactly how it will all play out, I just want to send continual love and energy and especially to the next generation who will probably be the ones to see all all of this through or not. And hopefully we can come out in better financial positions where we'll have some say-so on how we want to conduct our life and not just live out someone else's dreams or someone else's nightmares. So I want to thank everyone for listening to me share my thoughts again, my thoughts and my worldviews, and I'll be back at you. Peace. I'll leave you with... uh, just the end of uh, the clip from Justin Freed. Enjoy your day. Bless. Bound governance, really sound governance uh, to the platform. And what we did is we married all the benefits of a decentralized network with our decentralized governing body. Our vision of that was let's invite the biggest companies in the world to duke it out and fight with each other over what the features of this roadmap would be, what the fees to send currency back and forth. And Hedera is quickly becoming sort of the Ethereum for the enterprise. HBAR is really widely adopted by some of the biggest companies in the world. I'm no longer there. I still hold a lot of HBAR. I still care deeply about that network. And there's a lot of decentralized people in the ecosystem like me contributing to it. But there's so much more than just Bitcoin. Ethereum is a fantastic ecosystem as well. I have to tip my hat to the people that came before us. And we took a lot of inspiration and improved by implementing a lot of those improvements into Hedera.